This is Learning Innovation, the teaching and learning podcast, also known as LittlePod. We are created by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation, located in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. In the spirit of EDI and Nitsitapi Simstan, or Real Thinking, we play host to a spectrum of guests from the teaching and learning community. As we highlight and explore innovation in education, we hope to kindle warm conversations, expand perspectives, and foster lasting partnerships today, tomorrow, and beyond. The future of learning starts now. Okay, and welcome to episode number 31 of The Little Pod. Today's guest is Rich McHugh from the University of Victoria in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. Rich is the manager of the U of Vic Library's Digital Scholarship Commons, and he's joining us to talk about makerspaces in academia. Welcome, Rich. Hi, Donna. Thank you very much for having me on today. So, Rich, I've been hearing the word makerspaces floating around for a while now. Can you tell me what they are? A makerspace, typically you'll find them in schools, university, and colleges, and they're a space that have a variety of tools for students to use to either work on academic work or just to pursue a passion of theirs. So typically you'd find things like uh, electronics kits, like Arduinos, Raspberry Pis. You'd find 3D printers. Some of them would include shop equipment, like uh, woodworking equipment or metalwork. Uh, in the library that I'm in, we we have mainly cleaner, less noisy tools. So we've got 3D printers, electronics. We just got a laser cutter that's not too noisy. Uh, but again, they're just to allow students, uh, and in our case, students, faculty, and staff to uh, experiment, pursue ideas they have, uh, and explore, and uh, hopefully make interesting things. That sounds very interesting, and and uh, sounds like it would encourage a lot of creativity. Yes, yeah, yeah. I taught a class or two classes this morning from the education faculty. They're math educators on using three D design and 3D printing in K-7 classrooms. So it was a lot of fun working with them, showing them some of the possibilities and then just letting them explore uh, 3D design work. And then each of them got to print off something at the end of the class time uh, that they could take home and uh, show off to their friends or do whatever they wanted with. That That's an application that I actually would never have thought of. So there must be many applications beyond that then. Yeah. Uh, for 3D printing, sometimes uh, our very first print job was uh, a student who uh, designed a replacement trigger for his roommate's Nerf gun that he broke, just as one example. Uh, the second print job was actually uh, uh, a graduate student who exported a model of the a mathematical formula, formula out of Mathematica and wanted to 3D print that so she could put it on the table in front of her while she defended her dissertation. Um, we usually tell people that that was the first print job, but in reality, it was the trigger for the Nerf gun. Yes, that that probably sounds more academic, <laughs> I guess, than the, the trigger for the Nerf gun. Wow, that's really amazing. Um, yeah. And so are faculty using this as well? Yes. Um, not as many faculty, but we do have faculty who regularly take our workshops and uh, use our equipment. 
the one thing that, especially uh, here at UVic, we do have an engineering department and they have a number of 3D printers and other equipment. But typically those are just limited to the people who are in the mechanical engineering department, for example. So even the software engineers typically come over here to do any 3D printing that they'd like, just because they can't get easy access to equipment that are specifically tied to faculties or departments. And what about some of the other, um, you mentioned some other tools that were in the makerspace um, aside from the 3D printer. Yeah, so we've got a laser cutter that we've almost got ready for people to use, and it allows you to cut or engrave on things. So wood, for example, up to about six millimeters, and you can make cases for computers or um I actually made some business cards just because I ran out of business cards and thought it'd be fun to have a sort of a maple, you know, quite thin uh, business card. You can engrave on glass and metal, um, but it's a really nice prototyping tool for people who uh, are looking to test out ideas and prototype and could even be the final product depending on what they're doing. Now, that sounds like a tool that maybe you need some safety equipment or yeah knowledge yeah, there is a laser know. yeah the way that we've set it up they would just submit their job and then we'd have one of our uh one of our interns or one of our student employees actually run it um we might have students actually come in and do it but they'd have to do a fair bit of training before they operated it um and really it is just loading in a file and then pressing the go uh so it's not hard to do but uh if a fire starts or something like that you need to know what to do so Oh, well, that's really exciting. And what about some of the other tools? Uh, we've got electronics kits, like I mentioned, so Arduino and Raspberry Pi. And uh, we actually have a fair number of uh, graduate students who end up using them for um, sometimes almost art installation type things. Like they'll use a motion sensor that'll trigger a light or an audio clip or things like that. Uh, not from fine arts. They actually have their own lab that they do that. But people from the humanities often come to us for assistance with that. And we have gradu a graduate student who's got more expertise in that area than I do that uh, will consult with them and give them uh, give them some direction on how to do that, which is pretty fun to watch and see see those things come to come to pass. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, you wouldn't think of maybe the link between the humanities and yeah. some of the tools you were mentioning. Yeah. We've got a podcast studio in the basement, speaking of podcasting, uh, that is available to students. And we've got a uh, introduction to podcast workshop that we, we also offer to give people a little bit of background on how to get started for just a one-off uh, one podcast or one-off recording that we actually teach to a fair number of classes uh, for assignments that they at least have the option of doing an audio recording. And we loan off, loan microphones, USB microphones from the front desk of the library. Just they don't need a, you know, a full blown studio, but need to do a Zoom interview with someone somewhere else in the country. Then they can borrow a microphone and give them uh, give them a checklist of best practices so that they can get as good a quality audio as possible. It sounds like it really expands the possibilities for active learning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a Master of Arts in Education focusing on ed tech. So that combined with I was a systems administrator in the past. So I've got a pretty strong technical background, but uh, I've really gotten into the teaching part of things and the pedagogy. So 
uh, no, that's been really fun to watch, uh, watch that happen. And as I go into classes as a guest lecturer, it's like being Santa Claus almost sort of not a dull lecture today. We're doing hands-on and we're going to learn how to 3d print or, you know, do video editing or, uh, podcasting. Although ironically, our most, uh, popular workshop by participants over the past four years has been, uh, data analysis with Excel as in the spreadsheet which I never would have guessed, but uh, we got a request from an anthropology prof if we could teach Excel. And I have a Bachelor of Commerce degree and I've done a lot of Excel over the years. So I thought, oh, I guess so. I'm sort of surprised to get that request. So we did that and uh, it's been uh, way more popular than I ever would have guessed. Hmm. Uh, It sounds like you have quite a fun job. Uh, I am lucky. Just don't tell anyone else around here else. They might try to cut my pay or something, but... (laughs) Are there some specific projects that you've worked on that uh, you were really excited about? Yeah, um, I guess the the laser cutter has been a lot of fun learning how to use that. We've got a an engineering intern who's sort of leading that, but it's been fun to play around with that a little bit and see what uh, uses it could be put to to help students with their projects. Uh, we've been issuing badges here uh, for workshop completion Oh, since 2018, I guess. And I just finished a paper on student perceptions and uses of badges. So we did some survey of, uh, I think it was about 1,400 badge recipients, and then did uh, interviews with 15 of them to get some qualitative information. And it really is interesting to see how uh, they have started to use badges as a more fine-grained way of letting employers know uh, what they've learned to do Because even, uh, I'm not sure if it's the same uh, at the college there, but some of the course descriptions at UVic, it is really hard to tell what they might have learned in that course. Whereas if you've got a badge for, you know, Excel and podcasting and uh, creating infographics, it's pretty obvious what they've learned. And these badges are cryptographically signed and then linked back to the learning objectives for the workshop so they can actually see what they would have accomplished by earning that badge. So. That's that's um, very timely because we were discussing badges um, recently. Is that paper available publicly? It actually, I got a Google alert the other day that the, I'm presenting at a conference at the beginning of November, but I can give you a link. Uh, yeah, I can send you the link. Okay, if uh, we could have a link that. for the show notes, that would be wonderful. Yeah. And an infographic too, because that's way easier to digest. So, Very true. Uh, another thing that we're doing is we originally, when we created our curriculum, we just used Google Docs because it was easy and uh, easy from a sort of workflow perspective and easy to include uh, our student uh, students that were we'd hired to help us to work on them as opposed to the campus systems that tend to exclude students uh, from, you know, sort of regular workflow. But we've started migrating uh, to GitHub. Um, as a way to make it easier to collaborate with other institutions. Uh, UBC in particular uh, had started using GitHub a while back and Software Carpentry is another organization that I'm on the curriculum committee for also use GitHub. It's not as easy to edit things in as Google Docs, but it is an easy way to uh, document the uh, input and the work that people do for our student employees, for example, as well as share with other institutions and receive back uh, things that they've done that are cool to upgrade the workshops that we can incorporate back into what we're doing. 
Okay. So it's a, a more accessible platform? Yeah. It's a little, it's harder to use. Um, it's harder to use than Google Docs, uh, but it has some features that make it very nice for sharing and collaborating with other institutions. So if uh, if UBC had a really good workshop on qualitative analysis with Envivo, we could literally just clone their uh, workshop, modify it to meet our particular needs here. And if we did some things that we thought were cool, we could submit them back to UBC and say, hey, would you like to take these back? We think we've done something here that... Uh, others might benefit by, and then they can choose to incorporate those changes or not. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that sounds like it would be uh, really useful. Yeah, it does take a little bit of training uh, to use as opposed to Google Docs, which you don't really need much, if any, training for. But yeah, we're also in trying to decolonize our curriculum a bit by adding uh, more activities that have an Indigenous focus, an example, and that's been... uh, Something I really focused on this past June when I was asked to teach uh, an Indigenous education ed tech class. So I wanted to include some of those things in that class, and we were able to hire a student to help with our 3D printing as well as uh, help with updating our curriculum to include more more Indigenous examples and maybe take out some some things that aren't weren't quite as uh, quite as friendly. So yeah, that's been fun to see that happen too. That's a real area of interest. do you have some some specific examples that you're able to talk about from that? Yeah. So a couple of the things that we did, one I've got a, this really isn't, I guess it is technology. It's pretty low tech though, but we've got a sketchnoting workshop uh, called Sketchnote Your Way to Better Grades. So we in, used some, uh, a couple of examples of, uh, one was on Indigenous pedagogy and one was uh, one to four, uh, working with uh, learning uh, language skills. So drawing a, the example used was a campground. So like a tent and a fire and a river and a mountain, and then labeling those things with the, in our case out here, we use the example of the Sinchathan language, which is one of the the main languages spoken by uh, the First Nation, uh, one of the First Nations nearby us here. Uh, but it could be used for any language. It was a language revitalization uh, teacher cohort, so it made sense to focus on on that. Uh, we did something similar for our infographic workshop. Uh, and I think there was one other workshop that escapes me right now, but we want to, we've got about 40 different workshops that we offer. So we want to incorporate at least one or two examples in each of those workshops. We usually have more activities than time for the workshop by design so that people can pick and choose activities that speak to them and would be of most interest to them. So in addition to the makerspace, it sounds like you're really making a lot of use of quite a variety of software and and, um, other technology that's available. Yeah. uh, So Excel, for example, which isn't very sexy, but our studio, which also is not sexy, but really used by a lot of uh, graduate students uh, in vivo. Uh, We also have one on smartphone photography, which is pretty popular. Uh, There's a data visualization tool. I can't remember the name right now, but we've got about 40, like I said, about 40 different workshops. See, I'll send you a list right now. Uh, HTML, CSS, um, virtual reality and creating 360 tours, uh, data visualization with Tableau, infographics, 
qualitative analysis with Taget, which is an open source tool, data management plans. Oh, interactive nonlinear stories with Twine, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and, a, and a surprising number of classes have, uh, have started using that as an alternate way of completing assignments. So instead of you know, writing a paper, they'll tell a story, but incorporate the things that they've learned into the story, for example. And you can uh, make it a choose your own adventure type uh, type story. So, And it's called Twine? Twine, Interactive Stories. Yeah, Twine, T-W-I-N-E. Okay. Yeah. And so students are, they're, they're writing or narrating and then also creating visual, visual elements with them. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, they they can. They don't have to include visual elements, but they can. They can use uh, incorporate pictures, YouTube videos. Uh, they there's a lightweight scripting language built in, so that you can, for example, we had a professor from fine arts, and he did a story about baseball. And in one passage, the person was up to the bat, and he put in a little script. So 33 percent of the time, they would make a hit, and they'd go one direction in the story, and then 66 percent they they'd swing and miss and we'll go the other way, just as an example, but you could also use it. Yeah. You could also use it to store objects or things for later in the story. So let's say I go into a room and there's a wand, uh, a sword and a potion, and I can only pick one of them. I'll, I'll pick the potion. For example, it records that in a variable, um, or a, yeah, in a variable. So the later in the story, when I get into a passage with a, like a dragon, maybe the sword just makes it angry, but the potion will put it to sleep uh, and the magic wand does nothing or whatever. So uh, it's quite cool. Um, so is it sort of a simulation as well? Like, like you're, you're, you're in the, you're in the story. Well, yeah, you're, you're working your way through the story, but it really is up to the author to decide how they want it to look. It could just be text, but you could have images, you could have video, you can do background audio if you want optionally, but all those, uh, the multimedia effects are all optional. So, but uh, yeah, it's amazing to see what some of the students have uh, come up to and are exploring with it. I typically just see the ones who are really into it because they'll come back for some help with something fancier that they're trying to do that their, their professor do, uh, doesn't know how to do. So, but it is fun for me to see what they do. And we actually uh, suggest that they publish all of their stuff if they want to make it publicly available on GitHub, just because it's a really easy place to export that single HTML file that Twine outputs. Uh, and it's also a good place to host images if they're going to use their own pictures and, and audio. Oh, that sounds like something that, yeah, students could really be creative with and, and really unleash their imagination. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into makerspaces and all of the, the fun and exciting stuff that you do in your job? Yeah. Actually, it probably goes back to my father. He actually grew up in Lethbridge, uh, went to... Uh, Westbridge High, I guess. I think that's what it's called. And it actually went and taught there for a couple of years before he went back and got a master's and a doctorate in education. And eventually, uh, actually worked for a few summers doing construction in Lethbridge, like uh, I think house building one summer. And then he did uh, work with a crew building roads. He was the Q, uh, QA guy doing little cores to make sure the road... But he, I did a lot of building with him uh, as I grew up uh, here in Victoria. I was born in Victoria. 
Uh, and that's probably where I started doing most of my making was just helping my dad with things and tinkering. And, uh, when I, after I graduated, I moved to Calgary and, uh, my dad came out and we uh, had an unfinished basement and we finished the basement in about a summer. So, um, and then I've always been interested in computers and electronics. So that was a natural for me. Uh, I got a bachelor of commerce degree and, uh, worked for a manufacturing company in Calgary as a systems administrator and sort of project manager. And then after five years, uh, I growing up in Victoria, I just could not take the Alberta winter. So it was either a heated garage or back to Victoria. So I found a position here at the law library and law faculty at UVic as a systems administrator. And, and that's where I actually started doing some teaching was, uh, in the advanced research and writing class. Uh, uh, teaching law students how to use uh, uh, knowledge management tools primarily. And that's what twigged me into the fact that maybe maybe I should get a master's degree in educational technology so I could do more of that. Uh, but I've always in, enjoyed tinkering around. And when just as I was graduating, they started uh, up this uh, committee to see about getting a makerspace or a digital scholarship commons in the library. So the timing was perfect. And I've come in and it, like I said, it's a lightweight makerspace. We have sort of cleaner tools, but we, we do a lot of teaching across campus, which has been a way to get a lot of goodwill with other faculties across campus and help enrich the uh, sort of the in-class experience of a lot of students, just because we tend to do more engaging hands-on activities that they can sort of pursue things in their own way. I don't think I mentioned it, but one of the things that I like to say is that uh, at the Digital Scholarship Commons, we help students, faculty, and staff explore and express their ideas in ways other than text. And while that's not literal, literally true, uh, we do, it's mainly true, we do deal with some text, but we deal with a lot of other things as data visualization, 3D printing, electronics, a lot of non-text-based technology that are very helpful or can be very helpful in, like I said, exploring and expressing ideas that they're pursuing and as part of their uh, educational program or just out of personal interest. Sounds like it would, as you say that, also fit very well with UDL. Yeah, it's interesting. A few years ago, I was, I can't remember, I think it might have been our 3D design workshop. We often have students, faculty and staff all mixed in our workshops, more students than the other two groups, of course. But at the end of the workshop, one of the participants came up and she was a staff member and uh, asked if I'd be interested in teaching the uh, Indigenous Educational Technology class. I said, oh, well, that sounds interesting. I was teaching the regular uh, pre-service teacher uh, ed tech class already, so it would be similar. And I said, oh, that would be fine. Uh, that would be interesting to talk about. And this was pre-COVID, and it wasn't until last year that I was approached again by someone different. And as I dove in to look at it, a lot of the things we were doing in terms of active learning, uh, UDL, uh, all have strong tie-ins to uh, Indigenous pedagogy or some Indigenous pedagogies anyways. So I understood better why she uh, sort of asked about that because a lot of what we did just as what we thought was good teaching practice tied into what they they have uh, known and used for uh, for a long, long time, of course. That's really wonderful. So we have a, a makerspace here as well. And, and as I understand it, makerspaces are, are relatively new in post-secondary. Where do you see them going? Where do you see makerspaces evolving? What's kind of the next, what do you see in the future with them? 
Yeah. And it's something that I probably have an interest in this because we're trying to do that and we're seeing it more and more here. And that is sort of co-curricular activities. Uh, You know, we couldn't have every class come into the makerspace, but we, a lot of the software-based tools, we can go out to their classrooms and introduce them to the makerspace that way. Uh, so that if they do have other projects, uh, then they can come and visit us and work on them here. Or if it's software-based, they might just, you know, be able to work at, work at it on their own, on their own computer and then consult with us when they have questions. But really integrating into the curriculum, I think, uh, is probably the best way to uh, make best use of the makerspace. Because if, like I said, if every class came in, we just wouldn't be able to accommodate them. But we can reach out to them. We can provide provide them with curriculum. And some of the classes that I've seen, uh, that I've been to a number of times, the professors are comfortable enough. They've just started using our curriculum, which is perfectly fine. Uh, I make sure that in the slide decks that we provide, we've got a, a little introduction about what the makerspace is and and what sort of things they can find uh, find here and what help they can get here as well. So you mentioned that you enjoy tinkering and you know maybe you've seen other students or faculty come do you see sort of benefits with that like what are some benefits that maybe one might not think of sort of beyond the academic to doing that kind of thing in a makerspace yeah well sometimes people will come in you one thing I like to do at the beginning of workshop is ask people what you know what faculty they're from and then one thing that they hope to get out of the workshop and a number of people say, oh, I just, you know, heard about 3D printers or podcasting or whatever the workshop is, and it sounded interesting, which is perfectly fine. Uh, okay, probably a little less than that. Uh, that's probably 30% of people. Uh, another, probably half of them would uh, have a project for a class or something that they think that the the skills that they'd be learning would be helpful. And then you've got people who have something in mind that they want to do. And they're usually the most motivated, even more than the people with the class assignment, because they've got a passion for something uh, or for that particular thing. And there's one example that I love, and it's uh, Paige Whitehead. She was a biochemistry student, I think. Yeah, biochemistry student. And she loved going to... um, outdoor concerts like festivals music festivals in the summer and uh, you have a lot of those glow sticks at those music festivals and because of her background she knew how toxic the chemicals were in those glow sticks that you typically get so she thought i wonder if we could make some a glow stick that would be more environment but more environmentally friendly and you know hopefully biodegradable and so she was able to make the tubing for the glow sticks out of purified seaweed she put charcoal in the bottom as a as the sort of the stopper on it, which can enrich soil if you just toss it in the ground. Seaweed obviously is just going to biodegrade, but she needed a cap for her uh, for her prototype. Oh, and she was able to use a bioreactor to uh, condense uh, bioluminescence from the ocean into a tablet form. So she just needed a cap, and she wanted a metal cap, but it's hard to work with metal. So she came to our 3D design workshop. She didn't say anything, but she was there to figure out how to make a prototype cap. And about two, three months later, I saw an article in the sort of the campus newspaper about her and this thing she was doing. And I go, hold it. She looks familiar. So I looked up in our registration system and sure enough, she was there and she, it it took her three or four tries to get a cap that would fit on properly, but she made this cap and she's now running a business uh, doing, you know, bioluminescence in a way that's environmentally friendly. 
Uh, now, not every student is going to do that, but she was highly motivated and has been able to do amazing things. And we just had a very, very small part in that. We just provided her with a bit of information, uh, enough uh, 3D design experience to get her up and running, and then uh, and then provided the 3D printers for her to do her prototyping on. Uh, but yeah, that was a wonderful, wonderful to see things like that happening every now and again. But yeah. even... Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that's just absolutely amazing. That's remarkable. Yeah. On the flip side, we get a lot of, uh, not a lot, but occasionally we'll get groups of Dungeons and Dragons players coming in because it sounds like those pieces for their games are quite expensive. So they'll come in to design things and the material that we use and that most 3D printers use adheres to acrylic paint so that they can print something and then make it look nice with some different colored acrylic paints. But both of them, the smiles on their faces leaving are basically the same. They both achieved a goal and uh, and done something really cool in the process that they're proud of. So uh, even if it's not a business, if they're just enriching their lives, it's it's fun to see that happen. Yeah. So So a lot of benefits through those spaces and the tools. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation and really inspiring. And um, I think, I mean, I can hear your passion for the makerspaces and all the amazing tools that you're using and the projects that you're working on. And I think that it will really um, motivate others as well to have a closer look at makerspaces and see the possibilities that they hold. Oh, wonderful. It's been great talking to you. I'll have to stop by next time I'm in Lethbridge and, and say hello in person. Please do and come and check out our makerspace. Oh, for sure. <laughs> this episode featured Donna McLaughlin as host and Rich McHugh as guest. Jordana Gagnon was our producer. Ryan Robinson was our sound technician and editor. Thank you also to Daryl Benebeck, Joel Godry, Kelsey Jansen, and Jamin Heller for their ongoing support and expertise. Our podcast is funded by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation and recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. For more information and inspiration, check out learninginnovation.ca. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and follow us on your chosen platform. Thanks for listening and take care.